Well, we are back for another year of the Disruptive Voices of the Pacific. This is our first episode for 2024. I am currently in Australia for a little while. This is my home, believe it or not, even though I spend a lot of time over in the Pacific. But today I have a guest with me, a woman who I've actually wanted for quite a while on this podcast. Uh, She also lives in Australia, but is of Pacific descent. Her name is Ellie Marie Diamond. Hello, Ellie. Hi. You're in a bit of a haze there today because your camera's um, playing up, but I think it actually adds to the effects. Um, But Ali, Ali is um, a survivor of childhood abuse and the sex trade herself. I first heard her speak, might have been mid, around 2015 in Melbourne. And the day I heard Ali speak, I... I wept but I just wanted to crawl under the table and weep because she was sharing her story some of her journey as a prostituted woman and um, her ability I've never heard anyone be able to just communicate so powerfully so every time I hear Ali speak she's amazing Uh, she's now a leader survivor which we'll talk a bit more about that later what you're doing now because you know God is using you and your story and your communication skills to uh, impact our nation. You speak a lot into um, Parliament as well, but around the world. So thanks for being with us again, Ali. You're uh, an inspiration. Thank you. You don't live too far away from me in the little town of Warwick. But Ali, maybe tell us a little bit of what life was like for you. Where did you grow up? Uh, Maybe a bit of your background. What, What nation you descend from and then a little bit of what life was like for you as a young girl so I um, grew up in Auckland in New Zealand that was where I was born I was born at um, National Women's Hospital Um, and at the time um, I was born to my mum she was only 15 um, and she uh, was unable to look after me so my grandmother adopted me so I actually grew up knowing my grandmother as my mother um, my grandmother was, and I'll refer to her as my mum because otherwise I get confused. Um, so my mum was um, of British descent. So she was from England. Um, and um, I guess growing up, it was uh, it was tough because I was a, a coloured girl in a very white family. Um, and at the time, I didn't know um, where I was from growing up. I had no idea. Um, I remember being at school and kids always asking me, you know, why why are you brown? Why is your skin colour different to your mum's? Um, where do you come from? And I would never be able to answer. It was, um, and it, it seems small, but for me it was huge because I always knew I was different, but didn't know why or where, if that makes sense. Yeah. I remember I, remember I used to see... Um, you know, Polynesian communities and um, Maori communities and families. And I would remember as a kid yearning to have that that sense of community and that sense of belonging and that culture. So it was something that I um, grew up always feeling like I was missing out on something. Yeah, well. Um, yeah, it was, it was hard. My grandmother was a very strict Christian woman. Um, so she belonged to a church called uh, Worldwide Church of God. Um, it was founded by um, a man uh, by the name of Herbert W. Armstrong in um, California. 
or Los Angeles, somewhere there, uh, Pasadena, sorry, that's where it was. Um, they were very, very strict. So they didn't believe in Christmas or um, Easter or birthdays or anything like that. Um, I remember I was never allowed to play sports on Saturdays because that was their Sabbath. Um, wasn't allowed to, um, I used to love singing and love music, um, but I was never allowed to participate in any musicals at the school because, you know, they always would do the Easter musicals or the Christmas musicals. Um, so I always felt like I was always missing out on something. Um, and that church was, um, there was a lot of sexual abuse in the church. Mm. Um, a lot of leaders who were sexually abusing children. Um, and I was a, a victim of that. Um, and it was always swept under the carpet. You know, kids would try and tell their stories and um, and they would never be believed. No, you know, the ministers wouldn't do that. Or, you know, the the um, the deacons wouldn't do that, you, you, you know. And then I guess at a young age, I was always labelled the troublemaker or, you know, the liar or I was promiscuous or... You know all these sorts of things so it was um it was tough growing up my um family were very um disciplined they used a lot of physical discipline um and so it was it was yeah it was tough it was very yeah. tough yeah yeah no that's um horrific for any young child to have to go through the church abuse um, were church leaders aware of this or or they were, and they just, it sounded almost a bit cultish to me. Yeah, it was, it, back then it wasn't like that because I wouldn't have even known what that word means. But now looking back, I'm like, I call it a cult because it, it, that's what it reminds me of. Um, they were aware of the sexual abuse, um, but they always swept it under the carpet. It was, you know, nothing ever came of it. There was no, never any accountability or, um, you know, nothing for the men. So how did that then affect, you know, a relationship with God? How did you view God knowing that church people were doing this to you? Well, I guess I um, I didn't believe believe it growing up. Like I didn't believe he was there or um, well, I don't know if I didn't believe he was there. I think it was more I had a lot of questions. So I would always question why, why me, um, what makes me different, why is he not protecting me, Um those sorts of questions. So I think it added to my low self-worth. So I was like, oh, there must be something wrong with me if God's not protecting me. There must be, you know, I, I must be what my family say, that I'm that black sheep or that bad egg because he's not he's not there for me like he is for others. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't just abuse inside of the church. You were also abused by uncles and family members as well. Again, was that something that the wider family were aware of and just swept away? Yeah, they all knew about it because I would, um, I would tell. You, it's the first thing you do, I think, when you're a kid, is you know, I, I went to my mum and I went, "This is happening to me," um, and I straight away, um, the family unit, the white family unit, as I call it, was called, um, and immediately I was labelled as the lie. I was lying. Um, if I wasn't lying, I must have done something to lead him on, you know, to cause it to happen. Um, yeah, so it was it was tough. I can't imagine. Um, and so at what age did you find out, because you're from Samoa, um, yeah. so what age did you realise that you had some connections to the islands and, and that's why you were a different colour? 
So I think I always knew, but it wasn't actually until um, about, uh, no, I have to think, probably about five years ago that I finally found out where I was actually from. So, um, and that was only because um, I did an ancestry DNA test because um, I'd heard that if you do these tests that can come back with, um, you know, where your, your culture and I guess what you're, what you're made up of. Mm -hmm. um, so I did one of those tests um, and it came back that I was Samoan. Oh. And it was actually from that test that I found my dad. So, yeah, so that's pretty cool. Okay, I was just about to ask, have you known your dad? So have you met him or been in touch with him? Yep. So um, when I was younger, so when I was about uh, 16, I asked because I'd been, I'd grown up knowing my birth mother as my sister until I was about 12. So when I was about 16, I asked her, um, I asked, I started asking her questions. Where did I come from? Did she know my culture? Um, did she know who my dad was? Um, you know, I was at that age where I really wanted to find that somewhere to belong, that sense of belonging. Um, and she actually said to me that um, she had been raped by um, three men and she didn't know who my dad was. Yeah. All she knew was that he maybe was Polynesian and came off one of the boats, you know, was working on the boats. Um, and I remember um, from that time I... That was where I pretty much started going downhill really badly, like in my mental health and my spiritual health, my emotional health, because I instantly labelled myself the rapist child. I was like, oh, now it all makes sense. God put me, this was my, this was my, um, my theory. God put me on this earth um, to be, um, to be that person who men can take advantage of. That's why I'm here. I'm the rapist child. And that's how I kind of justified to myself why all the sexual abuse and emotional and um, physical abuse had happened to me was because that was my purpose in this world was that. Um, but when I did the DNA test, I um, came across a first cousin who was Samoan. Um, so I reached out to her. Um, and she was instantly excited. She was like, oh, your dad has to be one of my dad's brothers. Um, but then we were still not very hopeful because there was 18 of them altogether, 18 brothers and sisters. Um, so we were like, oh, this is not going to be no easy, you know, feat trying to find out who it was. Um, but when I was younger, my grandmother, mother, um, gave me a photo and she said to me, um, she said, Alison, because my name is Alison, um, Alison, I don't believe, um, I don't believe that what your mum is telling you is is right. I actually believe that a young Polynesian boy who I used to work with in a supermarket, I believe that's your dad. Okay. But she couldn't remember his name. So I gave this photo um to uh, my first cousin's dad, and he looked at it. And he said to me, was um, was that in, in Auckland? And, and I can't remember where it was. Um, and I went, yes, that's where it was. And he went, hang on, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'll get back to you in a minute. And he came back and he was like, I know which one of my brothers is your dad. Wow. wow. That was amazing. It was amazing. And I always say it's a miracle. I had prayed my whole life to know who my dad was. Um, didn't think I would ever meet him because we had no first name, no last name, didn't know where he was from. 
um, no information whatsoever. And yet yep. from a simple DNA test, I found my dad. And my mum was right. It was the young boy from the supermarket. Yeah. So that was um, a, a big thing for me too because I had spent, um, like I'm 52 now, so I'd spent about 46 years thinking that I was, you know, this this rapist child, that this is um, that my dad was a rapist, to find mm. out that that wasn't the case at all. Yeah, wow. And what is your relationship with him now? Do you keep in touch regularly or? Yeah, it's good. It's really, really good. So he um, he was amazing. He instantly um, instantly accepted me as, as his daughter. Um, he said he always knew that he had another child out there. For some reason, he thought it was a boy, but um, he always knew because when my mother and him were dating and when they were dating, she was pregnant. Yeah. Yeah, so wow. he always knew that he had a child out there somewhere. Yeah. Wow. I never knew that part of your story, so that's exciting yeah. as well. Now let's come back to your um, teen years and, yeah, we, we heard a bit about growing up with the dreadful abuse. You found yourself as a young um, mother as well, a bit similar to your birth mother. Yeah. Um, at what age did you first give birth? Well, I was um, 19 when I got pregnant. So I was I was still young, but not young, young. Um, he um, he was my first boyfriend, like serious relationship. Um, and he was extremely violent. Um, when he found out I was pregnant, he picked me up, threw me across the room, did everything he could to um, get rid of the baby. Um, he was an Australian boy, young Australian boy, um, or young man, should I say. Um, but, uh, when my daughter was, um, born, um, my mother, grandmother, um, they, the church didn't believe in, uh, single parents raising children. It was a, it was a big no, no, it was just something else I'd done wrong. Um, they didn't believe in, um, children out of wedlock or anything like that. So when my baby was born, she was very fair, mm. um, very white, blue eyes, blonde hair, um, so instantly my mum was, you can't raise her. You're a coloured woman. She's white. Um, you can't, that's not going to work. Um, so she was uh, very shortly after removed from my care for my for my mum. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. was very heartbreaking as well. Yeah. And then at what age did you find yourself um, entering into prostitution and how so did that yeah, so I think I was uh, 21 okay. um, um, is when I found myself there. I had um, gone back. I had left the church and gone back to the church. Um, but, um, you know, having a baby out of wedlock and um, I wasn't the, I'm trying to think of the word. I wasn't the, um, I guess I wasn't the perfect model of what a Christian woman should look like. Um, so I had a lot of um, a lot of judgment and criticism and um, put downs and um, never had that sense of belonging there. They they were always trying to push me out. Um, soon after they took my daughter, because um, the church was involved in that as well. Um, soon after they took my daughter, they um, kicked me out of the church. Um, basically closed the doors. Um, sent out letters to all the congregation. 
um, saying do not have anything to do with Alison. She's no longer a member of the church. Um, so that's, yeah. So I was pretty much on my own. I had no one. So even though the church wasn't um, great, you know, even though they weren't, it wasn't a great place to be, the people in there weren't great, it was still the only life I'd known. They were the only people I'd known, the only community I'd known. Um, I had no friends outside the church. Mm. I only had those people inside the church. Um, so when I was kicked out, it was um, very isolating, um, extremely lonely. Um, I was terrified. I was so scared. Um, and uh, it was there that I entered um, the sex trap. Wow. Man, so how things would have been different if the church had embraced you? I mean, I mean, this nonsense that you don't look like the perfect Christian woman, that's, you know, yeah. ridiculous, isn't it, when the church is meant to be for the broken? So in essence, you know, the church is highly responsible for you ending up uh, in the sex trade. Um, yeah. yeah, anyway. Um, I call it... Um... Uh, I guess in some ways I say the church really groomed me to enter the sex trade. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Can you explain that a bit more? Well, by the sexual abuse and stuff in the church, by them ignoring it, um, not acknowledging it, that it had happened, not holding men accountable. It, it, I grew up in a world where um, abuse was normal mm. and it was accepted. Um, and it was okay because there was never, they never showed me anything else. That's what they showed me. They basically showed me that a woman is, um, you know, I always think when I, as a mum raising my own kids, I always try to teach my kids, especially the girls and the boys, but I try and teach the girls that um, they're worthy and that they don't deserve to be treated in certain ways. You know, like, when they were, um, when my girls were in school, you'd hear people say, oh, if the boy's bullying you, it means he likes you. Whereas I say, well, no, that's not okay. Whether he likes you or not, that that is not okay. If he really liked you, he wouldn't have thrown a rock at you. If he really cared about you, he wouldn't have called you that horrible name. Yes. Yeah, so trying to instill those lessons that, so when they're older, they don't, they don't tolerate that kind of abuse and that, you know, those rundowns. Yeah. Yeah, I've never um I mean I'm aware of so many churches even here in Australia, but uh, even more so in the Pacific where the church leaders are covering up abuse um where they're aware that it's happening um and I've never heard the term the church has groomed me, but in essence that's what they're doing. That's what's happening. Um mm, it's powerful. So may God um, clean us up and mm -hmm. disrupt us. The church enable the men's behaviour by not holding them accountable. Yeah. So they almost encourage the men to keep um, to keep perpetrating these these crimes and offences by not holding them accountable. Yeah. Yep, that's it. And look, and that can be said the same of a lot of families as well. Um, we just want to hide things, and especially in a shame-based culture, um, so many families enable perpetrators again and again, which, yes, in your situation, groomed you for the sex trade. So how did you find yourself? I mean, yet we know it's kind of the, 
the shunning of the church, which pushed you there. But, you know, how did, did you knock on someone's door or how did, what did your first night look like? Oh, the first night in the sex trade, are you asking, or yeah. the first night yes. out? Yeah, the yeah. first night in the sex trade. Um, the first night in was um, was probably the one that I remember the most, um, being the first night. Um, I remember I was um, terrified. Um, I, um, I was very, I guess, um, meek and timid, uh, timid. Um, um, and very, um, what's the word? I'm trying to think of the word. Um, sometimes I find it hard to remember words. Um, very naive to what I was getting into. Um, I had this um, theory within me that I was like, well, I'm I'm getting sexually abused anyway and beaten. I may as well get paid to have sex with men. Like I may as well be getting something out of it. Um so, but I remember that first night, yeah, I was so scared. I um, had no idea what to expect. Um, I remember my very first client, um, the manager at the time um, was excited. They were really excited to have me because I was really petite back then. I was very small. Um, I was short and, and tiny. Um, never been in the sex trade before. So there's this thing when you first enter the sex trade, um, it's like being a virgin again because you knew. Um, everyone wants to be the first one. Um, every man wants to be the first one. So I was in high demand that night. I think I had over 20 clients that first night. Um, I had nowhere to live, so I was living in the brothel. Um, and I remember at the end of my and finally, when the manager let me go to bed, I was bleeding, bleeding everywhere. I was in so much pain. Um, not even the abuse compared to what I'd been through in the sex trade. Um, the men were different. They were more violent, more entitled, um, because I'd, I think because I'd paid for it, so they expected what they wanted. Um, men who wanted you to be the porn star, um, disappointed if you weren't, um, men who wanted you to do everything that they'd seen on porn. Um, some men who wanted to watch porn while they were with you. Yeah. Um, so they weren't having, you know, they didn't see me as a human being. They yeah. just saw me like a sex toy, I guess. Yeah. Yep. No, definitely. So, I mean, how did you end up at that brothel? Did you knock on the door and say, hey, I need a job or did someone recruit you? I answered an ad. So, um, yep, I answered an ad. Um, I was desperate for money. Um, and, you know, the ads, they all say, um, you know, you make $1,000 overnight or make X amount of dollars. Um, and that was what attracted me to it. Um, I wasn't 100%. Um, I remember thinking, oh, I don't think I can do this um, because I'd still been brought up in a church. So I had still had this moral code, I guess, Um and I was like, oh, this is this is not this is not going to be right. This is not good. I shouldn't be doing this. It's not um, right. Um, but when I got there for my interview, they made me feel beautiful mm. and wanted and accepted and appreciated, and they made me feel like I belonged there. And I was they opened their arms and I was welcomed. So it was that that made me go, yep, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is where I fit. This yeah. is where I belong because I felt so at home there. 
Ah, such a contrast from the church, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> However, we know, you know, we know that they know how to play the game as well, the, the sex trade. So it's it's a bit of a show as well. Um, but but... I knew it wasn't right. In the back of my mind, I knew it wasn't right. Mm. But for my whole life, all I'd wanted was somewhere to belong, to feel like I was worthy, that I was beautiful, that I was loved, Absolutely. that I had community and that far outweighed that moral code. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a human need. So, you know, you and I, um, we hear the argument a lot uh, that these, you know, prostituted women, they've made a choice. <laughs> they've chosen. Um, and you answering an ad, you've chosen to be there, but just talk a little bit more into was it your choice? Well, I always say it was my choice to answer the ad, but I don't think grooming and coercion is really a choice. Do you know what I mean? Like they, you know, um, by giving me what they knew that I wanted, they saw that vulnerability. They saw that I was insecure. They saw that I had really low self-esteem because it's not hard. You tell someone they're beautiful. If they have low self-esteem, they will instantly put their head down and um and get this, you know, go things. But they can't take the compliment, you know what I mean? So it's not hard to pick up on those cues that someone is vulnerable. Um, so they gave me what I wanted to hear. So in some ways that's coercion, right? You've been you're coerced into that that false fantasy that you're going to have a family and be looked after and um, and wanted and worthy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I say the choice was taken away from you at age three when you were first abused. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So all I thought I was worth. Like I didn't think I was worthy of anything else. I, even though I had big dreams, I um, – always wanted to be um you know I love to sing and I wanted to get into music and I wanted to be a lawyer but all that stuff was seemed out of it was out of reach for me like I that was something that I'd been told my whole life you'll never amount to that you're reaching too high that's not going to happen yeah so you know this promise of big money and you'll be looked after what what is the reality once you get into the sex trade most of that you always I remember going in and thinking yeah, yeah I'm going to be able to pay my bills and I'll be able to get a house and maybe I can get my daughter back and it doesn't happen money goes on um clothes because it's a competition you're there with other women you have to look your best because you know it's not the buyers choose who they want to um you know take into a room so you're always competing to to get that you know to get that buyer Mm -hmm. um, so you've got to have the best clothes, shoes, you know, your hair done, grooming. Um, and then before too long, um, you can't disassociate anymore like you used to be able to. So then you start drinking to numb the pain. And then when the drinking doesn't work, then you start doing the drugs. You know, someone will say to you, well, if you want to stay up all night and get some more money, just take this. This will keep you up longer you'll be able to stay awake you'll be able to do more work so then yeah. eventually that's where your money goes yeah yeah easy uh easy earn easy spend isn't it um and just you know talk a little bit about the physical 
toll on you again. Um, you know, a big a big argument in my own city when our brothel was opening up was that the women, they're going to receive health checks, they're going to be looked after. There's a, a panic button in the room she can press at any time. Um, give us a bit of the, which I didn't buy into, but this is what they sell the public. Um, what what's there, the there, were, there were panic buttons in the room. Um, I guess the thing is, can you reach it? Exactly. <laughs> um, it's really difficult to reach it. If you have a, a man on top of you who's um, extremely big, you, it, it's difficult to reach. Um, then there's the question, does anyone ever come? Well, no, they don't. Mm -hmm. um, they never came, ever. Um, so the panic buttons were kind of, they were just, I, I don't know, I used to say they were just there to look good you know, make other people feel better that they were there, um, but they never got used. Um, in regards to checks, um, I think I only ever went to um, get checks when there was actually something wrong with me. So I remember, this is how naive I was, um, when I first went in there, I think I'd been doing it for about six months, and I was really itchy down below, and I was um, freaking out that I'd caught something and I had crabs and I had never, ever heard of crabs before. I didn't know what they were. Um, I remember having a massive panic about it um, and the girls telling me how to get rid of them. Um, and then I think that was when I went for my first health check, just to, you know, because I was in that, mm. in that frame of mind of what is else, there's something else wrong with me. Um, but I think I had two and the whole, six years I was there yeah so not did, did you work at one brothel or did you move around a bit so I worked at one brothel for a while um and then I um had some issues with um some of the girls there um and ended up moving to another one and then I started moving from one to another to another and what did you see over the years <laughs> Um, you know, how were you treated? Um, but what did you see in, in that industry? So um, I would say the white girls were definitely treated better than the coloured girls by both the managers and the buyers. Um, the buyers wanted, um, you know, the, the blonde, tall, um, big busted bombshell that was their um that was their fantasy because back then that was what they saw on the porn on pornographies was you know the blonde porn, porn queen star um especially from things like you know the playboy mansion and you know that's the i guess the dream girl when it comes to things like this um they would always get paid more um they were always what i call the pretty woman ones you know where the buyers would come in and say you shouldn't be here. You, you should be somewhere else. You shouldn't, this is not where you should be. Let me get you out. Let me pay for you to get out. Um, so they always had that, um, I guess, that that choice, I guess, um, whereas the colour girls didn't have that. We would be the last to be picked. Um, we would um, be paid the least. Um, we would be treated the worst. Um because we were coloured, I guess. They thought we were, I don't know, they were, you know, I never really understood it before, but it was almost like they just thought we were trash so they could do whatever. And we were, we were that, we were lucky that we would get, we were, we were lucky we were chosen by them. Yeah. Because they wanted the white one. Yeah. So we're lucky that we, you know, they chose us. Yeah. Okay. 
<laughs> leftovers. So yeah. racism, racism is alive and well. Right. Um, and this is why we call it the sex trade and not the sex industry because it's not an industry where you want your daughters working in where there's good work health and safety practices and um, <laughs> all of that. It's it's a slave trade. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, you know, and I always say men don't, you know, when, when men go in there to buy women, they don't have a checklist where they go, is this one trafficked? Is this one underage? Is this one here by choice or has she been coerced? Is this one here because she wants to be or because she's been forced to be? They don't have a checklist. Men don't care when they come in if you've been trafficked or not or if you're there by choice or you're not. or They don't care. Yeah. No. Hey, here's my money and give me. Managers don't care either and neither do the owners of the brothels. They don't care. No, no. It's all, all about the money. Uh, the younger the better. So the younger you are, yeah, and the wider you are, okay. the bigger money maker you are. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So um, you know, here in Australia, you have um been I won't say being used, you have you have put up your hand to go in front of politicians because in Australia there's a push to decriminalize. Um, prostitution, which would just mean that you can set up brothels in the main street of town. You can go to open days at schools and promote this as a viable, great um, career choice. So you have been fronting up, particularly down in South Australia, and um, we need you here in Queensland because it's knocking on the door. I know it's knocking on the door in the Pacific nations as well, um, and it's already been there in New Zealand. Why, why is decriminalisation a bad idea? because it comes back to what we were talking about before in the church when you know holding those men accountable if you don't hold them accountable then you're just encouraging their behavior um and full decriminalization decriminalizes everybody i don't know whether people understand um you know i think a lot of people think it oh great it decriminalizes the women yep that's what we need but it also decriminalizes the buyers and the brothel owners and the pimps and the traffickers it criminalizes everybody because even though trafficking is illegal in Australia, it becomes too hard to dif differentiate between a trafficker and a business owner. Do you know what I mean? Because they're not going to just come out and say to you, oh, yeah, I'm, I traffic these women. And the women who have been trafficked aren't just going to come out and go, oh, yeah, I've been trafficked. They'll actually say to you, yeah, I'm here by choice. Yep, so it totally becomes open slather. Uh, and, again, a place like Germany, we've seen high-rise brothels, you know, with floors and floors of floors. I think New Zealand has been looking at something similar. Uh, part of the excuse, they say, is that, you know, it takes it out of the black the back blocks and brings it out into the open. But um, I think we've seen more, more damage done to women in New Zealand. I was just reading a report you'd written yesterday about the amount of deaths that have happened. Yep. Um, and no one's held accountable uh, because it just becomes an open meat market, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah it's horrible. It's really heartbreaking. And, you know, even in New Zealand, um, you know, they'll, they'll tell you that there's no sex trafficking in New Zealand. They like to tell you there's no child sex trafficking in New Zealand. Um, they call children over there child prostitutes. Um, it, 
it normalizes it. Like full decriminalizes normalizes it and desensitizes everyone to it. I think in New Zealand recently there were some articles um come out in media and they were sharing stories of sex sex workers. I hate using that word, but just for because that's what they use, they'll use it. Um and it was telling the story of how they entered into the sex trade. And they entered as children. But there was nothing in the story about how terrible it was that this child had been exploited. It was just like, how great is this? This runaway child um, entered when they were 14 and now they're living this amazing life. I don't understand. But that's how normalised it's become and glamorised. Yeah. I think glamorous. I mean, speaking to, you know, for how many years were you in it? About six years. Six years. So what was what was the physical, mental and emotional toll that took on you? So um, back then um, I was uh, highly dependent on um, drugs and alcohol. Didn't enter in with that dependency but definitely left with it. Um, had been in and out of psychiatric institutes, um, loads of flashbacks. Um, but I don't think I realised the full effect until I came out, until years, years later. Um, so now, um, probably now, you know, in, in the last few years, I've realised the full effect of what happened to me in sex trade. Um, I now have been diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder, um, a, a whole range of different, there's a whole list, like there's a massive list of different things I've been diagnosed with. Um, I still get massive flashbacks. Um, my relationships have been affected. Um, I have major trust issues with men. Um, I have, uh, when I came out of the, the sex trade, I've had two serious relationships that I've had children with. Um, they both haven't ended well. They were both violent and abusive um, because I still thought that that was normal, that that yeah. behaviour was an acceptable way um, to live or an acceptable relationship to be in. Um, I thought all men were like that. All men were violent and abusive. It was it, it's normal for men to behave in that way. Um, it must be something that I've done wrong. I should have, you know, cooked for them more or cleaned for them more or um, been more attentive to their needs more. Um, when they cheated, you know, I was like, oh, I should have given them sex more. I should have um, looked after myself better. I shouldn't have put on weight. I should have, you know, put makeup on a bit more. Um, it was never about them. It was always about me and what I had done wrong. So that um, has been hard for me. Um, and I still say now I've made this, pro I made a promise to my kids when I came out of the last one. I promised them that I would not get into another relationship uh, again unless they ticked a few boxes. And one was that they were, um, um, that they um, had the same beliefs and passions I did with not just, um, you know, Christianity, but also with um, advocacy and abolition work, that they needed to be passionate about those sorts of things. Um, and a few other things, And because I knew that if I found a man like that, then they had been sent by God. Yeah. They would be okay. Those ones would be good. Yeah. Yes. Um... And I'm still single, so... <laughs> So they must be far and few between. <laughs> uh, Ali, I'm single too, and um, there are good men out there, but they're not always easy to find either, especially when you have standards and won't put up crap. 
which I think is very important. If we're going to teach our daughters and other young people that they have worth, we've got to live it ourselves. And that um, includes the men we choose. Because, you know, as I learned, um, how we behave around our kids is what we're letting our kids know is acceptable. So if we're in a violent relationship, then that's what we're teaching our children as as normal. And I've learned that that's not what I want to teach my kids at all you know I don't want my children growing up believing that a normal relationship is filled with violence and abuse and I don't want my boys growing up believing that that's the normal way to treat women either so yeah no brilliant so now you know you're you're what we would call a a leader survivor um you know survivor because of all you've the fact that you're alive because you've seen many prostituted women not come out alive so the fact that you're alive, um, yes, you're still on a journey of healing, but you're clothed and you look well today. <laughs> uh, but you're also a leader and I've seen you among your peers, um, other survivors, and and they certainly look to you. Um, you're leading the charge a lot here in Australia, but also in New Zealand. You run an organisation, uh, Wahini Toa Rising. Tell us a little bit about that. So um, in 2019, um there we a group of us got together because there's no exit services or support in New Zealand at all like nothing um and in 2019 a young Maori mother um Bella Tapania she um was murdered um and she left behind a little girl um and it breaks my heart because I think um you know if there had been exit services or support services or um trauma focused services for survivors of the sex trade perhaps um, she wouldn't have gone back because she had tried to exit. So perhaps she wouldn't have gone back and this little girl would still have her mum and her mum would still have a daughter. Do you know what I mean? Um, so we um, started Wahini Tara Rising, which means Warrior Women Rising, um, in the hopes that we could somehow, I guess more than anything else, just be a shining light that there's hope for mm. others, that others would see us and go, there is a way out. You know, we are worthy of more. We do deserve more. There is a community out there who will welcome us. Yeah, yeah, that's that's beautiful. Um, so much hope is needed. So much money is needed to run these things too and to offer these services because um, especially in governments where they criminalise prostitution, they're not going to offer exiting services because, you know, what's wrong with us? Yeah. <laughs> um, And, again, this is a challenge for the church. We should be offering these services very much so. Um, So what's your plans for this year? I know Exodus Cry, um, for those of us who are familiar with their work, they do an amazing work around the world and they produce brilliant uh, documentaries and and they've got a new one out and you're going to be touring with them. Tell us a bit about that. So it's really, really exciting. I've been um, watching Exodus Cry for a while. Um, and love the work that they do. Um, they are just, um, you know, here's a Christian organisation that, the type of Christian organisations we need here in Australia and New Zealand, who are really stepping outside of the box and out of their comfort zones and um, just creating change and being um, and being gifts of hope is what I call them. Um, but they have some amazing, amazing documentaries. Um, and the new, the one coming here is called Buying Her. Um, it's brilliant. It really puts the focus on the type of men who are buying women. Um, 
And these are Christian men in this movie, Christian men who have gone from a pornography addiction to not being able to get enough of that to going into to um, buying prostituted, you know, women who have been prostituted. And in some cases, um, a man who committed sexual violence outside of that um, and ended up being um, put in jail for it. Um, and then it's all, but it's a story of hope too. It shows how they've come out the other side, um, how they have been held accountable, um, how they've um, realised their mistakes and how they've transformed their lives into now helping others. So it's a beautiful story. Um, it's a story of reality. It is a, a big reality, um, big reality check, um, but it's one that needs to be told because these types of men are in churches in Australia and New Zealand. Um, you know, I came from a church in New Zealand and there was heaps of sexual abuse um, from those men. So we need to, um, as, as Christians and as communities, um, really be holding our men accountable and teaching these things in our churches. Yeah. Yeah, great. Uh, well, we look forward to seeing that and glad that you'll be on the road because part of uh, showing this movie is having a panel um, afterwards, the movie as well. So hopefully we can get it into some of the Pacific Island nations because it's alive and well over there. And the porn industry is quite often the open doorway to a lot of this. I um, call it the gateway to hell. <laughs> gateway to hell. Um, so, look, Ali, our time is up. Thank you. Um, okay. Firstly, because I know every time you share your story, there's a price to pay. It's not easy. You're reliving um, hell. Um, but I know that you understand that by speaking up, sharing your story, um, it's giving courage to other people. And particularly, you know, uh, in Fiji, we are working hard to break uh, a culture of silence, a culture of shame. Uh, culture of religion and I think you've experienced all three but you're you're smashing them apart uh, with your voice um, and God is has redeemed and restored all of that which is beautiful so thank you and uh, please look her up um, there's you know if you google Ali Marie Diamond you find stories and and YouTube and other interviews with her too she's an amazing woman and who knows one day maybe We'll get you back to Samoa and Fiji and Vanuatu and get you to all the of All of them. All of them. We've got to do a big tour. Yeah, um, yeah. Great. Yeah. And if anyone wants to donate so I can keep doing this work, that's really important too because I'm completely non-funded. I don't get paid, um, but I don't do it to get paid, but it obviously helps for me to keep doing the work. But I don't, but yeah, it's, it's my heart. That's why I do it. Your heart, but you got to eat as well, and you do have children <laughs> and grandchildren. Good, alrighty. Well, God bless, and we'll be in touch. Thank you. Yeah. Easily, I see your suffering. I see the pain beneath that smile come out from hiding the sun is rising let the islands hear reason let